Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Okay, so we're going to jump into um, what I've been teaching for the last three weeks, four weeks, uh, that has basically the context of what's happening to Israel in view. So I'm going to pick that up, and today I've entitled this one, Jesus, Israel's Gift to the World. Israel's Gift to the World. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again, Israel is central, theologically, biblically, and historically. He is the central theme and plan of salvation for everyone. Jesus, the Messiah, who is king of Israel, who as a Jew came to Israel to bring the gospel of the kingdom. And it's through him that the nations are invited in to participate with Israel in this great plan of redemption. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Jesus in the construct of the book of Revelation. The nations, they're inflamed by the evil one, and they are forever trying to destroy Israel and the Jewish people, and ultimately those who follow her Messiah, Jesus. This recent attack on October 7th and up through now and tomorrow and for a while to come, this recent attack is the most shocking the world has ever seen against Israel, and it's not over. It's far from over. It's just beginning. The nations of the world right now are lining up either for or against Israel. People everywhere are doing the same thing. Today, we're going to continue to look into this war against God's people and why you, as the followers of Jesus, are also in the crosshairs. More importantly, we will see how we are to position ourselves to live within this existential evil threat against all that is decent and good. Now, as we jump into the book of Revelation, I just want to say some remarks about the literature that we're about to read. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. In fact, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 states this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This word revelation comes from the Greek word where we actually get our word apocalypse. We could translate it the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. This is what the word actually means. Apocalypse, the revelation of cataclysmic things to come. This tells us that the book itself is apocalyptic, that the literature surrounding it is apocalyptic. We see this throughout the book. It goes on to say, He made it known. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. This is interesting as well. The word known in Greek means to indicate by a sign, to signify or communicate through symbols, to make known as with a sign or a word. Give an example. He signified his disagreement with a frown. Okay? So there's all of these signs and symbols and figures of speech 
in this literature that are designed to communicate truths. The book is highly symbolic, full of symbols. God comes through an angel to make known through the language of dreams and visions and symbols. The genre is apocalyptic literature. Goes on to say concerning John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. We're going to see over and over and over this phrase, I saw, I saw, I saw. John is always seeing things. What's he seeing? Visions. Visions of what? Symbols animals, you know, things that are symbols of something else. Truths that God is wanting to communicate. In order to understand the book of Revelation, the symbols, the types and shadows, the figures of speech, we have to look into its context. We have to find its antecedent theology, right? We have to find the backdrop to John and his audience. Who is John? John's a Jew. Who's this Jesus guy? Oh, he's a Jew too. The one who said that salvation is of the Jews, from the Jews and of the Jews and to the Jews. Right? Paul says, another Jew. But the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So the book of Revelation is a very Jewish book about Jewish things, about a Jewish people called Israel. And the Gentiles are grafted into her through faith in Jesus. So in order to understand these images, these symbols, these figures of speech, we have to understand the Hebraic backdrop. What these things meant in the mindset of a Jew. So let's step into the world of John and Jesus to get a better understanding of what they're saying. I'm going to move all the way to Revelation chapter 12 because that's where we left off last week. So in Revelation 12, we're going to begin to work down through this passage. And uh, I'm not sure how long it's going to take. Maybe a couple weeks, but we'll see. But I want to start here in John, or Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. This is another one of John's visions. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. John is seeing things in the heavenlies. They're not literally there in the sky. Rather, he sees them in the realm of heaven. And what is it that he sees? A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Not not a literal woman floating up about 1,200 feet, right? No one else is seeing this because it's not literal. John is having a vision. John is in the heavens or seeing into the heavens. So what is it that he sees? And more importantly, what does it mean? What does it mean? 
Obviously, this is not a literal woman. The woman is symbolic of something else, but what? Well, we have to go back, right, to the antecedent theology. Does the Word of God speak of women, in particular, a woman, a heavenly woman? And if so, where? Where does John pick this up? Where does he get his material? All the way back in the first book of the Torah, in Genesis, the first scroll, right? The first scroll of the Bible. We find the story of Joseph. And he's about 17 years old at this time. He is the youngest of his brothers at this time, until Benjamin is born. I'm not sure if Benjamin's alive at this point. Side note. But he's 17 years old, and he has his multicolored robe from his papa. Dads, never play favorites with your kids. You'll really mess them up. You'll really mess them up. But he made the, the classic mistake. You know, four different women and 12 sons, and now he's playing favorites. Not a good plan. Not a good plan to have more than one wife, by the way. That was his first mistake. But nonetheless, he has given a multicolored garment to his son and showed some favoritism, and his brothers are beside themselves. If you go back into the context of the story, they, they are so angry and jealous and envious, they want to kill him. Man, they are just like done with their little brother. And what's their little brother doing? He's oblivious to it, riding the heights of favoritism, his nose high in the air, looking down at his brothers, he's about ready to get himself in so much trouble, it's unbelievable. Different story, though. But as we jump into this event that is the backdrop of Revelation chapter 12 and this woman in the heavens, this is what we see. He has a dream. And in the dream, chapter 9 and verse 11, it says this. Genesis 9-11, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brother, saying, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. The sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Is that a little grandiose or what? It's almost delusional. The sun is bowing to you? The moon is bowing to you? And how many stars? Because last time we counted, there's 11 brothers here. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to you? What are you trying to say, Joseph? What is the meaning of your symbols, Joseph, with the multicolored robe? That's about to die, <laughs> right? Okay, that's me reading into it, but verse 10. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his, father's, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground? before you and his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the saying 
in mind. His father understood the symbols. His father said, really? Your father and mother and your 11 brothers? Because Joseph, he's the 12th, which means there's 12 stars. There's a sun, a moon, and 12 stars here. Fascinating, huh? Think of the imagery. This is the framework of John in chapter 12, as we'll see. But you're saying that your father and your mother and your brothers are going to bow to you, that you're going to rule and reign over us. In fact, you're going you're to rule and reign over all of creation because the sun and the moon are bowing to you as well? You've got this astral aspect and this meaning in the earthly terms of what it represents. All bowing to you. Really, Joseph? But his father kept that in his heart. Jacob and his 12 sons, we know, and their physical descendants become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Israel. Israel is the bride of God. That makes her, that makes her, if you want to follow the symbolic meaning, that means she is the bride of the king of heaven, which makes her what? The queen of heaven. The queen of heaven. That Israel becomes, prophetically speaking, in the view of symbols, symbolic language, the queen of heaven, because that's her destiny. Israel shall be saved. She shall rule and reign through the Messiah over all the world. So Israel is the woman who becomes the ultimate queen of heaven. What's described here is her glory. The sun and the moon, right? Clothed with the sun. Beautiful, powerful, luminous. On her crown, 12 stars representing the 12 tribes of Jacob. You cannot mistake the language here. This is in reference to Israel, the bride of God. So when we jump in to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1, what we discover is this, that the woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet with the crown of 12 stars is a reference to Israel itself, both in John's day and in her future glory. This is the antecedent theology that gives us the framework to understand what John was saying in chapter 12. He goes on to say in verse 2, she was pregnant. Who? The woman. Who's the woman? Israel. Israel was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and agony of giving birth. Interesting, when you think about what's being described. Is this not the description of Israel giving uh, birth to the Messiah? And is not Messiah, not only the Messiah of Israel, but the whole world? Is not Israel bringing to the world a gift of redemption through the birth of the Jewish Messiah? Yeah, listen to Isaiah, what he says. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. 
In chapter 9, 6 through 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Speaking of the Messiah who is born among us and rises in our midst, it says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Again, the imagery of what? The sun or a star. People shall see a great light. Speaking of the Messiah, those who live in a dark land and the light will shine on them. This Jewish woman in the heavenlies, this queen of heaven, represents Israel and the Messiah who she gives birth to, as we'll see later in the chapter. Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. It's always bothered me. They came out with that movie Avatar. How many people saw Avatar? It's a great movie choreography in, in terms of imagery and so forth. But it just bothered me that this movie places all of the hope of the world of eternal life in the Savior at the end, which is none other than what? A great red dragon. Satan's such a liar. He is always trying to take away the glory of Messiah. Just bothers me to no end. But that is not what John's talking about. When he says great red dragon, he is referring to something. He's referring to Satan, the serpent of old. But it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten hordes, and on his head seven diadems. Again, symbolic language, symbolic imagery. There's not a real red dragon, okay, with seven heads or whatever. Yeah, it, it actually represents something else. And once you understand what it represents, then all of a sudden, the story comes to life. This here is a reference to Satan who is portrayed in the metaphor of a mythological monster. And that's what he is. But it also reveals that this monster, this evil one, has power and authority over our world. Verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Let's talk about the stars of heaven. What do they represent? Because with his tail, he sweeps a third of them to the earth. Stars of heaven can represent angels. And in addition to that, they can represent the people of God. We see that throughout the Tanakh. Sometimes in reference to heavenly beings, other times the word stars are in reference to leaders among the Jewish people in Israel. Pick that up later. Suffice it to say that the dragon comes to kill and devour 
the Messiah that's born of the woman. Now, how does he do that? How does the heavenly being do that? He does that through earthly rulers and powers, through their structures, their authority, their mechanisms of death. We know from the story in the Gospels that King Herod is filled with an evil spirit under the influence of, of this demonic serpent. He's inspired to kill Jesus in his infancy. In fact, in Matthew 2, 16 through 18, it says, these are when the Magi come through because the Magi from the east want to honor and bring gifts to the star they saw in the heavenlies, referring to the star that's born on the earth, the Mashiach. And so when Herod finds out who's king of the Jews at the time, he, of course, is worried about losing his power and authority to this king. So then he wants to inquire of them where this child is so he can give gifts. But the writer of the story tells us that behind the scenes he's lying and he wants to kill him. Verse 16, we'll pick up the story. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi because the Magi didn't tell him. In the end, they misled him. Then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time at which he had determined from the Magi. That was Satan's attempt through one of his own who was in power to kill the infant Jesus. So many, many Jewish boys perished in that day. This was not Satan's first attack against Israel and the Messiah. It's one of many, but it was one of the most alarming. He goes on to say, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Verse 5, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, she who, the woman who, Israel, out of Israel comes one who will rule and reign over all creation. This is spoken about in the prophecy of Balaam. Again, all the way back in the Torah, we find these stories. It's the backdrop to what John's trying to reveal. She gives birth to this male child one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And the enemy's right there, present among the people to kill the Mashiach and thus secure his place as ruler over our world. But what happens? It says her child was caught up to God. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Somehow the child who represents the Messiah, right, Jesus, 
he's going to be caught up to the heavenly realm? Is that what happened? Is that what we see in the scriptures? Yes. What the enemy thought was his ultimate victory was his ultimate defeat. Because out of the realm, the belly of death itself, the realm of death, God reaches down, raises his son, not only out of that realm, but even causes him to ascend from the earth into the heavenlies, where he is crowned king of kings and lord of lords, given the scepter of his father, the throne of David, to rule and reign from that point on until all enemies are made a footstool for him. Everything that John is saying is coming to pass. John gives us the view from the language of symbols. Verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, I'm not going to get down into the weeds of this, but I do want to point out that Jesus warned his followers. Jesus, the Messiah, who comes to his people and through 12 Jewish apostles begins to gather his Jewish people. And as they're putting their faith in him and being born again and, and becoming part of this reconstituted Israel, this, this Israel of God that he's raising up through the Messiah, he warns them that when they see the abomination of desolation, which in Luke he refers to as the Roman armies that are coming to lay siege on Jerusalem, he says in Luke, when you see... The armies, referring to Rome, the armies that make desolate, don't even come into your, get off your roof, and when you get off your roof, don't even come into your house to pack. Run! Run! Because Rome is going to lay siege, and Jerusalem is going to be choked, and then slaughtered. It's going to be the worst time she's ever had in her entire history up to that point. He says, flee north into the mountains. What we see is that no one flees except this one sect of Judaism, the sect of the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth, his sect of Judaism, his followers. When they saw the Roman armies coming down, marching towards the city, they fled the city. The other groups stayed. The other sects of Judaism within Jerusalem stayed there. They fled. And no one know, knows where they went. They didn't even know that they fled until like back in the 70s when a Seventh-day Adventist scholar named Samuel Bakiaki was invited to the Gregorian University, the first Protestant in 450 years to be invited to study at the prestigious Gregorian University, the Je Jesuit University, right? Under Vatican II, you know, the Catholic Church is opening up the doors to all the Protestants. You're, you're no longer separated, or you're no longer, um, uh, what do they call, not infidels, that's Islam. Um, I forget what the Catholics referred to non-Catholics as, but they changed their term. They said, we're now going to call you separated brethren. You're separated brothers, and we're going to invite you back to Rome. 
And so one of the ways they showed the goodwill of opening the doors to the Protestants is they said, let's invite a Protestant scholar to the Gregorian University to study with us. And out of many, many applications from all over the world, they picked one. Samuel Bacchiacchia, Seventh-day Adventist. They said, please come. After all, he had been born in, in, in Rome and grew up in Rome. So it was a good fit. So they invited him. And so he comes out with some documents in his thesis that basically said, you know what? Uh, the Jewish followers of Jesus actually fled the city and they went north to Pela and they were found thriving in the third and fourth century, century, the very direct descendants of Jesus. They believe in Jesus and they keep the Torah, you know? And, and, and the Catholic Church initially said to him, his, his uh, um, overseers in his doctoral program said, no, 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 Sam, you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We, 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 we cannot accept that. You, you can't marshal evidence from America, liberal America. This is Rome. You know, we don't deal with their libraries because, you know, they got a lot of problems you know, verifying their sources. He says, I didn't bring them from America. They said, well, where'd you get these documents? In your library. He says, I got them right here. In the libraries, in the Vatican. These are your documents from your libraries. No one had ever discovered those yet. There's so much that, that's still yet to be discovered. But, but he brought those and they checked and they verified and they thought, oh my gosh. And this caused so many shockwaves throughout Christianity that this early church father documented not only that they had fled Pela or fled uh, 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 Jerusalem and Israel, or Jerusalem fled north to Pela, but they were there in the third and fourth centuries believing in Jesus and living according to the Torah. And these were described as the sect of the Nazarene, the, the followers of, the, uh, of Jesus of Nazareth, in all of their beauty and in love for Jesus and the Torah. And so all of a sudden, the church all over the world had a migraine. It's like, oh my gosh, what do we do with that, right? But I really believe that this revelation that John has given is the very thing that helps prep the followers of Jesus to go through the crisis that was at hand and to escape so they could thrive, not only survive, but thrive in the midst of a satanic attack against the people of God. Let me just sum it up. In the end, and we'll go through this in, in weeks to come, because the theme that John gives, he repeats several times in this chapter to get his point across. In the end, the dragon, Satan, his angels and those who align with them go on to persecute Israel and try to annihilate her. Verse 17, so the dragon was enraged with the woman. Who's the woman? Israel. Enraged with Israel. Enraged with the Jewish people. What we're seeing in Hamas and Hezbollah, this is the satanic hatred against the people of God that's been here from the beginning. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. We see the stories where nations try to annihilate the Jewish people, a very small group, mighty nations like what? Egypt, Babylon, Persia. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, went off to make war with the rest of her children. 
enraged with Israel and the Jewish people and also with the rest of her children. Who, who's that in reference to? The Gentiles who believe in the Jewish Messiah and are grafted into Israel. Those are the rest of the children. The attack against Israel ultimately will be an attack against Christians. That's ultimately where this war goes. It's a war between good and evil, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, all the way back in Genesis 3. So we're embroiled in this ongoing war with evil. It's going to culminate in an ultimate global battle with the center of it over Jerusalem. And we're seeing it in our generation like never before. And in light of this heightened attack against Israel and ultimately all of us who follow Jesus, how shall we live, right? How shall we live? Revelation 14, 12. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Here are the heavenly angels calling to us on earth. Stay the course. Stay steadfast. Now's the time to persevere. Don't give up, right? Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Don't stop. Stay the course. I'm not digging holes in the ground and putting bomb shelters in, okay? I'm not, I'm not going to do all the things that the world does when these things are happening. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to become a better father and a better husband. I'm going to be a better pastor. I'm going to share my faith like never before. Because that's what it means to persevere, to be faithful, to carry on with the call of God, to make disciples of the nations, introducing them to Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them this wonderful redemption, a way of life that is so invigorating, gives so much hope, even in spite of an accidental threat against our lives. We will stay the course. We will stay faithful. We'll be united more than ever. We're going to love more than ever. And we're going to overcome through the one who has already overcome the world, through Jesus himself. Okay, that's it. So carry on, persevere. Love your neighbor like never before. Love your family like never before. Live for Jesus like never before. Because the time is drawing close. Shabbat shalom.